Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Hello, and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, I am honored to have joining me via telephone Dr. Harold Pryor. Born and raised in Tennessee, Dr. Pryor graduated from high school and was embarking upon a college career when he entered World War II as a medic attached to General George Patton's Third Army as it marched across Europe. Following the war, Dr. Pryor re-entered college where he earned his bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees, the latter one in higher education administration from the University of Tennessee. He taught and held administrative duties at several Tennessee colleges before becoming the very first president of Columbia State Community College, the very first community college in the state. Concurrently with his academic career, Dr. Pryor became a successful businessman and philanthropist, serving his community for over three decades. Moreover, listeners might be amazed to learn that on October 3rd of 2020, Dr. Pryor turned 100 years old. Dr. Harold Pryor, welcome to History's Hook. Can you hear me, Dr. Pryor? Thank you, Tom. Okay. Thank you, Tom. It's good to be with you. Thank you. First off, before we get into your life story, this is the first time that I have had uh, an opportunity to speak to a centenarian and tap into the wisdom of 100 years. As a student of history, I'm keenly aware of the time in which you have lived and the changes that this world has undergone during the span of your lifetime. I'm going to put you on the spot just once and ask, at 100, and knowing what you know today, if you could speak to your 20-year-old self, what advice might you give? Get a good education. That seems to be a theme for your life. Uh, a pretty pretty amazing story, and we're, we're going to unpack that today. So you were born in Livingston, Tennessee in 1920, at the very end of the Woodrow Wilson administration, just two years after World War I ended. Livingston today is a small town of roughly 4,000 people. Tell us about Livingston in the 1920s and 1930s. What was it like growing up there? Well, I grew up on a farm uh, in uh, near Livingston, Tennessee, and I lived on that farm and worked on it until I was finished high school. And uh, it was a small, smaller place, uh, two or three thousand people at the most, and uh, it uh, was much different from what it is now. It, uh, it it's made progress, just like other uh, college. Uh, towns have and uh it's uh it's uh, much more uh, up to date now than it was then it was pretty primitive in my time sure your parents were hubert and ethel Pryor. can you tell us about them where where were your parents from what did your what did your parents do my father uh and mother were lived on a farm and uh they were farmers all their life so were my grandparents on both sides of the family and uh, they were, my father was, uh, had an interest in an ice plant, and but he primarily was a farmer and spent some time in the ice plant now and then. Uh, uh, he's, he uh, was somewhat of a politician, I think. He ran for a county court. Back then they call a county commission. 
the county court, and he served on the county court for several terms. What kind and, of farming did they do? He was basically a farmer. Uh, what kind of farming did they do? Just general farming. Uh, we had grew cattle and grew, grew uh, corn and hay and and uh, and uh, wheat and uh, grew pretty well. If you wanted to eat during the Great Depression, you had to grow it yourself because uh, uh, there wasn't uh, any money for people to buy stuff out of stores much. The Great Depression. I'm a I'm a Great Depression child. Uh, from about 1925 to 1940, it it hit that rural area, and uh, it was. Uh, really a terrible time. Well, I don't think we've ever seen anything like that in my, in my time. The economy just collapsed, and uh, there were, were no uh, government agencies then to assist, so people just had to uh, uh, turn for themselves. Were you somewhat insulated from the Depression, uh, given that you lived on a farm and were able to grow some of your own food? We always had plenty of uh, food to eat, but a lot of people didn't. And when my mother cooked during that period, she took she cooked extra extra material, and we put a table on the back porch of our house. And we knew people were coming to ask for food, and so she and people came. She would have uh, food that she anticipated that would be needed. And she would, uh, it was just part of uh, feeding the people who were traveling, hunting for food. Wow, that's amazing. Did uh, did you have many siblings? Had one sister, okay. no brothers, and uh, she was three years younger than I was. And incidentally, I'm uh, the uh, first high school graduate of both sides of my family, first college graduate of both sides of my family. And she was the second uh, college graduate and high school graduate. Huh. Which is interesting. So that was going to be my next question, actually. Your parents were not particularly educated? They didn't have opportunities for education? No, uh, they were not. Uh, my father finished elementary school and did attend Livingston Academy for one year, I think. But he did not graduate. But uh, my mother... Uh, uh, was very active, and she read a lot, and she educated herself. But no, they were not educated people. Did they the instill a sense of education in you, their children, you and your sister? Was, was education held at a premium in your household? Not necessarily. Hmm. Um, it was just not part of the culture at that time. Yep, you and your sister both graduated from high school and went on to college. That's That's fascinating. Right. Well, I uh, sort of broke the broke the ground, and when I was uh, uh, in college, my sister graduated from high school, and, and and the question was, what was she going to do? And girls were very limited in what they could do during those days, and so I took her with me to college, and we figured out a way to to finance her education, and that's what happened to her. What kind of student were you? I was a pretty good student in high school as well as college. I was not valedictorian. I, uh, I was, uh, but I, I think you'd say I was a pretty good student. Uh, where did you go to school for your uh, elementary and high school years? I went to a two-room school for 
where I began school, a two-room rural uh, uh, elementary school. And uh, then uh, my parents uh, bought a farm near my grandfather's farm, and we moved near there. And then I went to a one-room school. And the teacher taught all eight grades. I went there two years. And then I, uh, my parents thought I ought to, we ought to go to uh, uh, a better school in Livingston. They had a new school, about a 15 or 20 teacher school. And that's where we went uh, 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 and graduated there. And then we went to Livingston Academy, which was a private school. There were no public high schools in that county at the time. The high school we attended was Livingston Academy. It was owned and run by the United Christian Missionary Society of Indianapolis. The Christian Church owned it. So uh, they had better teachers, and that's where we uh, went to elementary and high school. What were the greatest influences in your life growing up in rural Tennessee in the 20s and 30s, would you say? I didn't understand the question. Uh, what were the greatest influences on your life growing up in rural Tennessee in the 1920s and 1930s? I think the teachers I had, teachers in high school, and uh, I think they were the ones that uh, we idolized in a way. And uh, and I had an uncle who uh, had been a teacher in Georgia, and uh, Although he had not graduated from high school, or he had not uh, not uh, graduated from a prep school, but uh, I I, th- I think the teachers, the influence of the teachers on me, indicated to me that if you want to get ahead in this world, you better get an education. You better get out of here and get out of get out of this rural uh, culture, and uh, and. Uh, See if you can improve your life. Did you play sports uh, or take part in any extracurricular activities? What did you do for fun? Well, I, I uh, played basketball in, in high school, played basketball and played baseball, and uh, uh, worked worked on a farm. There's always a lot to do on a farm. Right. And uh, when I had time off, we went swimming and we went to hunting, and we went fishing, and that kind of thing. As you ended your high school career, what were you thinking about after graduation? What did you want to do? I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to get a job. I wanted to go somewhere and get a job. I knew there wasn't any possibility of going to college at that time for my parents. They just didn't have the money. It was a period of time that the economy was just broken. And there just wasn't enough money, so uh, I I look forward to finding a way to uh, go to college. Interesting. What did you do for work? Pardon? What did you do for work? What kind work. of what kind of work did you do? Well, I, I first job I had was uh, in construction at uh, at uh, Pickwick Dam Village here, not far from us. And uh, I didn't have much money to get there, so I hitchhiked hmm. and got there, and I was in construction. I was a gopher. I, I mixed concrete, and I carried brick and blocks and so on 
to build uh, the uh, Pickwick Dam village, which was Mrs. Roosevelt's idea. And uh, it was federal money that was doing that. And uh, that's uh, my first job I had. Huh, interesting. Uh, and you were able to collect enough money to go on to college? Well, uh, I was able to. The, the gentleman who headed the the uh, program I was in, uh, National Youth Administration Program Camp there, uh, he, I, I uh, had taken shorthand and typing, and I was his secretary for a while. And he said to me, you don't belong here. You belong in college. And I said, well, Mr. Harris, I, I can't go to college. Well, you might be able to go to college. And he said, uh, the NYA has a program at Austin Peay State College. They're building a dormitory, a men's dormitory there, and the students are can they go there and work a half day and go to college a half day, and I think I can get you transferred there. So he got busy, and and uh, he took me to Nashville, and we got transferred to Austin Peay State College, and I went into construction again, having built a dormitory, and going to college, half, uh, I carried full load, I'd go to school in the morning, work in the afternoon, and that's the way I got started in college. That, that's amazing. So you're very much a product of sort of the New Deal programs that are uh, coming out of the the Depression years. So you're you're benefiting from a federal program that is allowing right. you to work and get it, money and pay for school. That's right. It's the NY National Youth Administration program. I was on that a year at Austin Peay State College, and I decided that uh, I'd learn the ropes around the college, and I decided I could do better on my own, and so I. Uh, Got a job at the college as janitor. Hmm. They had a large building called the Castle Building, and I was the janitor for the Castle Building. And I ate two meals a day at Ma Green's boarding house. I, uh, I applied there, and I was waiting tables at this boarding house, and uh, I ate two meals a day, and. Uh, and uh, lived in the dormitory and carried a full load of college. And uh, that's how I did it on my own. <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredible story. So Austin P. Uh, college was a normal college, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, which means one of its uh, primary courses of study was to teach students how to be teachers. Is that what you wanted to be? What, what, what were you studying there? Well, I was, uh, yes, I was, uh, uh, that was the purpose of the college. It was. It started out as a normal school and then became a state college. And uh, it was by law uh, set up to train white elementary school teachers and public school teachers. And so uh, at that time, uh, it wasn't integrated. It was just all for white children, white people. And, but later on, that all changed, and it became a, uh, a four-year college, and then later became a university. It's Austin Peay State University now, and offers doctor's degrees in, at the university. I was fascinated by that, and, and the whole idea of normal schools and normal colleges. I actually found your World War II uh, enlistment card, and it mentioned that you were a student, and it, and it mentioned Austin P. Normal College is, is how it was listed. 
and, and I think yeah. it's during this time you're at Austin P when World War II begins. Uh, it puts a halt to your plans for a time. Well, yes, it, that you're right. It did alter the plans. Uh, I don't remember the. It was a it was a four year college when I went there. I think. Um, where were you on? But Dece- I knew I knew it had been a normal school, two right. years school. Uh, where were you on December seventh of nineteen forty one, the day Pearl Harbor was attacked? Do you remember? Well, I, I remember that very well. I was a student there, and uh, I was on my way from the college downtown to meet a fellow for lunch, and uh, I stopped off at a service station and uh, was visiting with the people in the service station. They told me what had happened. Hmm. Uh, what was your reaction? What was the reaction well, generally? Well, we were that, all surprised, was... of course. Uh-huh. And uh, all of, uh, we all we really didn't understand the significance of it at that time. I don't think we knew that things were happening that were beyond control of everybody, and that we'd all be affected by it sooner or later. But we really didn't uh, have a feeling for what uh, was to come. Uh, you joined the Army. What what year did you go in? Well, I was in my senior year in college, and a recruiter came by, an Army recruiter came by, and he, uh, I had a high draft number, and it uh, looked like I wasn't going to be able to be drafted for a long time. And uh, we, we, were, we were pretty, pretty uh, we'd all become very... Uh, interested in getting in the war I got afraid I was going to miss the war hmm. I was uh, and so uh, we uh, this recruiter says if, if you sign up now and let us swear you in you can finish your degree well that sounded pretty good and so we signed up about 15 or 20 of us and the army changed its mind after uh, a while and called us up and we went in the Army, active duty, and uh, I went later on to basic training. Dr. Pryor, we're going to take our first break right now. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Dr. Harold Pryor. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're having a conversation with Dr. Harold Pryor, who would become the very first president of Columbia State Community College, which was the very first community college in the state of Tennessee. We'll continue our conversation, Dr. Pryor. We're at the very beginning of World War II. You're about 21 years old. You're attending Austin P. State college, and uh, you're joining the military uh, as the war is is starting to roll. Uh, What year did you enlist, and uh, where did you go for basic training? I can't remember the exact year, but uh, I did go for basic training to, uh, uh, I went to uh, Chattanooga, the the, uh, Army base near Chattanooga there, and I was there about two weeks, and they where they gave you all these tests and physical exams and all that kind of thing. And then they decided I was going to be a medic. The Army signed me to, to be a medic. I guess they needed medics that day. 
But anyway, I went to uh, uh, basic training at Camp uh, near Little Rock, Arkansas, Camp Robinson. I was there about three and a half months and uh, finished basic training and then joined uh, uh, and, and I was transferred then to the 96th General Hospital in, in uh, Texas. And uh, that hospital was processing to go overseas. So that's basic training and what happened after basic training. Did you know whether you would be shipped to the Pacific or the Atlantic? Or well, Europe, European the rumor theater? was we were going, the rumor was at that point we were going to going to Europe, ETO, and that's what happened. Uh, so you, we, we, go ahead. We, 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 uh, uh, I was there maybe two or three months and, uh, and, uh, additional training and this kind of stuff. And then we, uh, took a troop train to New Jersey, Camp Kilmer, New Jersey. And at Camp Kilmer, we were there about two weeks processing to go overseas. And at the first time I'd ever seen the ocean. Hmm. Uh, Atlantic Ocean, and I uh, got a, I got a pass to go into New York City. First time I'd ever been in New York, and uh, had a great time, and and almost got in trouble by getting back too late. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I got back, and uh, we took a train to Jersey City, uh, then got off of a, uh, a train onto a ocean-going uh, vehicle. Went across to got on the Dominion Monarch, which was a, which was a British ship, troop ship, had about five thousand troops on us. And that evening we pulled out into the Atlantic and were on our way to to Europe. And for thirteen days, it was a very rough trip. I was sick as a I was seasick. I'd never been seasick before, but I had problems with motion sickness. But anyway. Uh, I got my sea legs after about four days and, and could get out on deck and watch the uh, rough waters and so on. And I uh, had never seen a battleship. And I looked off uh, first morning, there was the old battleship Texas, the center ship of the convoy. And ships, as far as you can see, in every direction. But anyway, we got went north of Ireland and then down into the Irish Sea. And uh, uh, the uh, troop ship I was on uh, uh, went on down, and we got on a train, got off the boat, and got on a train and went to a new hospital uh, and took over uh, uh, the building. And uh, the outfit that was there was was not, uh, not a hospital. It was some other unit. And so we took over. Uh, the 96th General Hospital took over uh, this neuropsychic hospital, took over a large hospital compound. I think there were 36, 36 uh, different, uh, uh, forgot what you call them. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, we had six, had 31, uh, had 71 psychiatrists, 71 nurses and 700 troops to run that hospital base. And uh, even though I'd been trained as a medic, 
there was a post exchange on this compound, and they put me in the post exchange, running the post exchange, huh. and I did that for a while. And then later on, uh, uh, you know the rest of the story. So you you embarked uh, to the European mainland, uh, I assume, and uh, you had mentioned in a previous conversation with me that your unit sort of followed Patton's Third Army as it traveled across Europe and into Germany. Yes. We, well, we, we were attached to the Third Army. Okay. Now, you asked me what we did. Well, we, uh, we uh, ran a, a battalion aid station. We served, served a, a battalion uh, uh, as an aid station. We were about, about to, uh, oh, we were back uh, from the front where the, where the combat was. We were back about a half a mile. And, and then we received troops and uh, tried to do our best for them and, and evacuate them if we needed to evacuate them to, to, to uh, hospitals. Wow, that's in, that's incredible. And you did that all the way through through Europe. Uh, if you're attached through, to Patton's... All the way through France and all the way through uh, uh, into Germany. And uh, Patton's army, of course, was known I'm for going. its speed, its aggressiveness, and the deep thrust into enemy territory. That That's an, an incredible story. Um, were there any places that your unit occupied in Europe that stands out in your memory? Well, uh, yeah, a lot of them. Uh, uh, when we crossed the Rhine River, that's a memory. Sure. I remember. And then when we reached Germany, our, my unit, my hospital unit, got a new command. They, uh, instead of treating American troops, they said, you're, you're, we had 21, there were 21 enlisted men and one physician. The physician was in charge. And when we got to Germany, the uh, war was just practically over, and uh, they uh, pulled us out, and we began to try to get German hospitals up and running again. Huh. We became part of the uh, the uh, uh, sort of a transition team. Yeah, and and we we uh, spent uh, a good portion of our time for the next. Oh, for five months uh, doing that and getting German uh, doctors released who were captured and brought back to run these hospitals. And uh, the, the, there were no doctors. The, the, and the doctors, German doctors, had all been drafted, and uh, the retired German doctors were supposed to take care of the people, but they didn't. Most of the time, the nurses would be running, just keeping, be running the hospitals, no doctors. But anyway, that's one of the things we did during the Army of Occupation. Um, where were you when the war ended for you? When, when, where were you and when, when did you come home? Well, I, I, I was, uh, when the European war ended, I was in Frankfurt, Germany, and uh, at a big Luftwaffe hospital. Uh, they had pulled us back to to uh, made a, have us base in the Luftwaffe hospital that we'd have captured, and uh, we were still trying to get the German hospitals running again. But uh, what happened was, I get uh, my the captain 
uh, got a cable uh, saying report back to the 96 General Hospital. Of course, we were on, we were on, uh, we were just attached to Pat's Third Army, and uh, then we'd been, uh, we were still attached to the Third Army for the to the 96th General, from the 96th General. Okay. So we, they flew us back to England, and uh, they flew us to Paris and then to London. And then when we got back to the 96th General, they had moved down near Southampton and were processing to go to the Philippines. Wow. World War II still wasn't, oh, wasn't over, see. Well, they, we knew the ship in two weeks we were going to, get on a ship that we understood was was going to take us through the Panama Canal, and for 32 days we were going to the Philippines and establish a hospital in anticipation of the, of, of the attacking of the mainland of Japan. Well, uh, you know the rest. Uh, they dropped the bomb uh, before we left. Our, our advance party had already gone. They 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 went they went just as they were supposed to. But we we all said, "Well, man, they're going to let us go home. They're going to let us go home." Well, they didn't let us go home. Uh, they let some go home. They had a point system to let if you had a certain points, you could qualify to go home. Well, I had enough points to qualify to go home, but my MOS number now that's the number you have in the army that tells you what you do and uh, describes your qualifications. Well, uh, they said, uh, we need you. We, you've got to go back to the Army of Occupation. So they sent me back to Germany. Hmm. So I go back to uh, go back to Paris and then take, tra- take a train to Frankfurt, Germany, and, and uh, uh, became part of the... Uh, Army of Occupation of Germany, and I, I, I didn't get to come home for six months, and uh, then uh, I was, I never knew why, but they pulled me out and put me in charge of a, a unit to chase down lost service records. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the units who, who had uh, uh, in combat had lost their service records. And uh, they were trying to find them all. And you'd get phone calls from Belgium saying, we found X number of service records in Holland and France and all over. And what we would do, what I would do is send a, send a, a couple of guys, go get, go get this, take the truck and go get the service records. They bring them back. And we had a big building and we dumped them in the floor and cleaned them up and and got them back to the units if the units were still intact. But if they weren't, we'd ship them to the, the depot in St. Louis. That's where the Army records are, or were. As a side, I say, I'm, I've been told that uh, one wing of that building in St. Louis burned and burned up a, bomb in, or a lot of records. Oh, no. And I, my record was in there, I'm told. Oh. But I've got new, I've got new records. But anyway, that's a thumbnail sketch of my travels and incredible. different assignments. <laughs> incredible. Uh, an incredible story in an incredible time. You got out of the Army, and you continued your education? Yes. Uh, I went back to uh, 
Austin P. It was Austin P. State University then. I went back there and, uh, no, it was still a college then. That's right. I went back there and finished uh, uh, the degree in like one quarter and uh, finished the degree and then got married. I'd met a girl there uh, before the war and uh, she had graduated uh, while I was gone and was teaching in uh, in Alabama, I mean in Georgia. And uh, when I came home, I went to see her and we got together a time or two and we got married in June uh, in Clarksville. And then uh, we moved uh, soon after that to to Peabody College. I was going to just take a master's degree or work on a master's degree at Peabody College. Well, when I got there, they I got a I got an apartment for us in a graduate dormitory. When I showed up, I learned that Vanderbilt and uh, Peabody were merging. They were in the process of merging. Peabody was to become the graduate, become the, become the College of Education of Vanderbilt University. Well, I I was sort of disappointed in all that, but uh, my head of my uh, committee, my graduate committee, called me in and said, um, "We've been we've been watching you, and you've been you've been a good student here, and we want you to teach freshmen and sophomores, and we want you to take two years to do the the uh, master's degree instead of one." And I'm going to make it so good for you that you can't afford to fuse. Hmm. And I heard him out, and he was right. Uh, he gave us uh, the apartment free, and the salary was much more than I thought it would be. And I had the GI Bill, and I was in business. And so uh, I took, I stayed on for two years and took the master's degree. And, uh, and uh, then... Uh, before I got the degree, I had a job at East Tennessee State University. Uh, I went there for two years and taught geography and geology. Hmm. And, uh, and I was there two years, and then I went. I had to make a decision whether I was going to stay in higher education or not, and I decided to stay in, and I went to the University of Tennessee on a teaching fellowship, and uh, was there three years, and I taught while I was at UT and while I did graduate work there. And I graduated in three years. And I went back to Austin P as director of student teaching. Uh, and then I gradually moved up and became a head of the School of Education there. Interesting. I imagine that going back to school seemed maybe easier after your experiences in World War II. Would that be correct? Well, you're more mature. You know, you're 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 a different person in a way. You know, you're you're serious, more serious about about what you're doing. And uh, yes, it uh, uh, it makes it, it, it's, the end product is better. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna achieve something that's gonna mean something. You hope. What did your parents yes, think I'd of all of this yes education? To your question. Okay. What what did your parents think of all of this education? Well, my father kept asking me, "When are you going to get school? When are you going to get through going to school?" I think he took a he had a he had a plan for me. I think uh, he wanted me to uh, 
help him come back, and we and, and we did. I, uh, I, uh, he and I became partners, and we uh, bought farms, and we uh, uh, he he we knew he knew a lot about farming, and we sold them and made money, and uh, all it worked out pretty well. But he 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 wasn't he wasn't educated or interested. He he just. Uh, I think he was proud that I'd done some of this, but I don't think he uh, he was uh, excited about it. Dr. Pryor, this is this is really interesting. We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about your career in higher education. We'll be right back on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today, we're having a discussion with Dr. Harold Pryor, who uh, was a World War II veteran and a uh, the very first president of Columbia State Community College, which we're coming up on uh, here, Dr. Pryor, in uh, as we unfold your story here. So, uh, after getting your doctorate degree, you spent some time teaching. You said geography and geology, uh, and then you were getting a little bit into the administrative side of higher education. Can you talk to me a little bit about the state of higher education in the 1950s and 1960s? What changes did you see happening? Oh, there's a lot of changes. Uh, uh, when the GIs came back from the war, World War Two. And a lot of them went back to school using the GI Bill. That that put some pressures on the colleges and universities. They just a lot of people coming back, serious people. They weren't right out of high school. They were mature people, and it put pressure on the universities and colleges to to shape up and to uh, do a better job of teaching and a better job of uh, of uh, uh, helping the veterans, so I think it. I think it upgraded higher education. And you're right at the forefront of it, given your education level and the experience that you had accrued. Uh, I, I see you sort of at the front lines of these changes that are happening in education uh, in America, uh, not just here in Tennessee. It's, it's fascinating to me. The education level of the population of the United States continued a steady increase through the decade of the fifties in 1960, the median number of years of formal schooling by adults was 10.6 years as compared to 9.3 years for the adult population in 1950. The percentage of adults who had completed high school, uh, including those who went on to college rose from 34 to 41% over the decade, and the percentage who had completed four or more years of college went from 6 to 8% during the same period of time. By 1970, it had climbed, it had doubled, it had climbed to 14%. So it's during this time where you're finishing your uh, sort of higher level education and getting into teaching and then administration is where we see this big, big jump. Colleges, as you're saying, they're having to react to having some very serious students and having to sort of up their game uh, in terms of providing that level of education. So you're you're right at the forefront of, of all of that. Um, you were appointed Columbia State Community College's founding president on February 9th, 1968. Uh, the college had just opened 
uh, and broken ground in 1966, just two years before that. Can you speak to how the college got its start, uh, how Columbia became the home to this very first community college, and how you came to be the founding president? Well, I became an advocate early on for the community college system. Tennessee had uh, trailed that a lot of, most states had put in community college systems before Tennessee he got the idea. Uh, governor Clement uh, from Dixon uh, came to power as governor, and I'd gotten to know uh, his father, who was a lawyer in Dixon, and I'd gotten to know his sister, and she became deputy governor. And uh, whenever Frank became governor, one of the first things he did was propose to po- propose a a community college system for the state of Tennessee. And he proposed that they uh, uh, start with three different colleges, one in Middle Tennessee, one in West Tennessee, and one in East Tennessee. You're familiar with the grand divisions of the state, and you can't do anything much in, for one division of the state unless you do some of the other divisions. So uh, Frank recommended it, and the legislature um, in good time, um, debated it, and there's a lot of opposition. And, and in the meantime, Commissioner Wharf was Commissioner of Education, and the community college uh, program would be under the Tennessee Board of Education if it passed. Well, Commissioner Wharf had asked me to be a consultant to the Department of Education, and uh, I'd known him for a long time. And so I'd been consultant, and and he asked me, and so did the, the deputy governor, asked me to participate in advocating uh, with the legislature for the community college system to get it passed. So I was active in the in the for, in the in the process. Well, uh, finally it passed, and uh, uh, and uh, then the question and and. What happened was the legislature passed creating three colleges, but only funded one college. Mm. You, you you can pass a lot of stuff, but you don't get anywhere unless you fund it. But they only funded one college. I believe that uh, Governor Clement and Mr. Borf in particular uh, uh, gave that to Columbia because of the location of Owenwall, where Mr. Wharf was from, and Dixon, which was nearby. And I think that's the reason we became the first community college in the, in the, in the state. Huh. That's and, a uh, fascinating so, uh, so um, that's my speculation on it. I don't, nobody ever told me that, but uh, that's <laughs> the way I saw it. And uh, so the question then became, who's going to be the first president at, at uh, Columbia State? Well, uh, I, I had not, uh, I had not uh, pursued it, but uh, I went home to see my father and mother. And my father said, what's this I hear about you maybe being the president of a college? I said, what are you talking about? Well, the, the head of the Tennessee Farm Bureau Federation was a fellow by the name of Clyde York. I don't know whether you ever knew him or not, but he... Uh, was a good friend of my dad's, and uh, and uh, he was he was uh, Frank Clement had gone out of office, and uh, Buford Ellington had come in, and uh, 
and they were thinking about selecting the president. Well, it drug on and drug on, and the college ran for a year and a half without a president. They had uh, they had a uh, uh, maybe a acting president, but he was from Auburn University and wasn't familiar with the stage and one he'd never taught a day in the college. Hmm. And so, Clyde uh, York uh, was a powerful man and politically in the state through his office. And uh, Buford Ellington, who was governor, used to be uh, head of the insurance companies out at the Farm Bureau. And so my dad said, you ought to go to Columbia and talk to Clyde York about this. Well, I thought about it. I called Clyde York, and I came to Columbia and did talk with him about it, and we had a good meeting. And he said, let's stay in touch. Made no promises. And so as time passed, still they didn't appoint a president for Columbia State. It ran without a president. And uh, Clyde York was telling me all about this later on after it happened. One day, uh, he, he and Ellington had breakfast once a week together. And uh, so he said they were eating breakfast. And he said, Buford, when are you going to appoint a president down at Columbia State? The people down there are getting upset about it and want to know when that's going to happen. And uh, Buford hummed and all around and finally said, you got any ideas on this? And Clyde York said, yeah, I've got an idea. And he gave him my name. <laughs> and Clyde's story is that if Buford puts your name in his little black book, you've got it made. said Buford took a uh, pencil uh, and he wrote down my name in the little black book in his desk. And uh, in about a week, I get a call from Commissioner Wharf saying, uh, come to see me. I go to see him, and he said, well, we're going to make you president on the next meeting of the board, uh, as though he was going to do it. But the governor had given him the word to go, and that's the way it happened. Wow, that's incredible. That's why I'm in Columbia <laughs> for 52 years now. For 52 years. That was, I was going to say, Columbia, Columbia then became your home, uh, and, and you've been here been here ever since. Starting a college seems like a complex task. Today we know Columbia State Community College is a thriving campus with state-of-the-art facilities. I expect it was much different when you took the reins. Oh, yes. Yes, it's... The, uh, it had run without a president, and uh, I spent more time on doing things than I did uh, uh, being positive about uh, things. In my first... Uh, six months as president. Uh, for example, no one had thought to to um, had thought to get the college uh, uh, approved by the uh, by the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. And you, if your dear if your degree is going to be worth anything, it's got to be approved by the certain uh, uh, organizations like that. Well, I got on a plane, went to Atlanta, and met with the head of the Southern Association, and got that got temporary approval. So we were coming up on their first graduation after I got here, and so that was the first thing I had to get done in a hurry. <laughs> and uh, I got to checking uh, most of the uh, most of the new the first faculty were hired in by Mr. Wharf in Nashville, 
And uh, Mr. Worf was not too careful about what he uh, um, hired. And so he had hired four faculty members that couldn't qualify to be teach in a community college because they didn't meet the standards of the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. Here I had four faculty members that are up teaching. They had master's degrees. That was a minimum degree. But you have a person teaching uh, biology who doesn't have a master's degree in biology. He has it in some other field. So I had to fire four people. I tried to do it as easy as I could, but uh, I had to do it. And, uh, and secondly, uh, um, the nursing school had just been put in, and it was in a mess. The students were upset, the faculty were upset, and the students were marching and complaining. And, and um, So I picked up the phone. I called the National League of Nursing. I knew that the National League had to approve uh, nursing programs, and uh, they hadn't approved. And so I got the right person and told them my problem, and they sent a lady down here in a day or two, and she met with the faculty and the staff, and she told me, the problem is you've got a lady heading that nursing program, and she doesn't know a thing about administration. She's probably a good nurse, but she's just not an administrative person. And he said, she told me, he said, you, you've got to get rid of her and you've got to get you a new nurse director. So I fired the nurse. Hmm. And I picked up the phone and I called UT Martin. I knew they were putting in a nursing program and needed nursing staff. And she got a better job over there than she had here. And that worked out pretty well for her. But anyway, uh, we get an audit. That's my first year. We get an audit. It's the worst audit you've ever seen. I'm telling you, I've seen a lot of audits, but I got more. Uh, so I call the Commissioner of Finance Administration. He's the chief auditor of, uh, in the state and told him my problem. And uh, I said, I've got to get a new business manager. I got a new business manager, and I wrote down specifically what we could correct right then, and then I set a time frame on when the others would be corrected. And and so that got us by the audit thing. But I spent a lot of my time just undoing and correcting things that uh, could have been done if we'd had a president in the beginning, you know. You were president of Columbia State for 16 years, is that correct? Uh I was 16 years and nine months, uh, I believe, to be specific. Uh-huh. I want to mention two other facets of your life uh, before we close, uh, and, and unfortunately we're running out of time. But at the same time that you were at Columbia State, you were also engaged in various business pursuits, uh, and, and you were also very active philanthropically uh, in the community, uh, being a member of various organizations and taking part in a lot of activities. Would, would you mind spending just a, a minute or two talking about some of your business pursuits and your philanthrop- philanthropic pursuits as well? Well, I, I didn't, plan, uh, didn't plan to be a, uh, a parallel business manager, but some opportunities took shape for me, and uh, I took advantage of them. And uh, uh, so uh, I... Uh, my first mo- 
money I made, real money I made, was in real estate. I had, I had, uh, 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 I had uh, people who offered to take me in, and uh, and if I would uh, put up a little money, I could uh, be part of what they were doing, and I took advantage of it. So I'll not spend a lot of time on. I had, uh, I was vice president in the. In a, in, a, in a corporation, we set up a, a, a real estate trust in Clarksville. Uh, president of the First National Bank invited me to be one of the people who set up the corporation. And I was on the board for a while. And then later, I became a vice president in that. I was also on a corporate board in Camden, Tennessee, a business supply, building supply company. And I was on the Farmers and Merchants Bank Board, and uh, I was uh, on the corporate board, and on the bank board, and on the trust board, and uh, so I had a little experience in that. And along the way, uh, I got interested in the stock market, and I've uh, been lucky, I guess. Some say lucky. I uh, done pretty well, and I've always thought that uh, when, when, when in my case, I could never. Uh, of uh, finished college and finished a master's degree and finished a doctor's degree if I hadn't had a lot of help from uh, a lot of people. And I think uh, uh, I have a sense of, uh, of uh, giving back. And so I have already uh, done quite a bit of philanthropic stuff. I'll not go into the details, but uh, I'm proud to be able to do that. You've been very generous uh, with your resources to the to the community, and uh, countless students have benefited from your generosity uh, and from from your teaching as well. Dr. Harold Pryor, thank you so much for spending an hour with us here in the community that has benefited so greatly from your presence, and thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, Tom. We end the show with a maxim that has been followed throughout the life of our guest today and is found on the city proclamation that made October 3rd, 2020, Dr. Harold S. Pryor Day. If you aren't learning, then you simply aren't living. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. If you have water, smoke, or fire damage, call ServPro. They're faster to any disaster. Thanks for listening. Join us again next week as we connect the history in your backyard to the world on another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Saturday at 8 a.m. and Sunday at 6 p.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster. 